I'm Bridget Metcalf. Join me each week as I chat with leaders from around the world, shining a light of global issues that affect us all, so the truth may be known. Don't miss out on the conversation. Go to your favorite podcast streaming service now to subscribe to Truth Be Known. For upcoming podcasts, go to truthbeknown.org and enjoy the conversation. Hello, friends, and thank you for joining us today for our very first episode of Truth Be Known. Our guest today is Jamin Edward from Arizona. He is a brilliant young man and an educator of rhetoric, literature, and ancient history at Great Hearts Preparatory School in Chandler, Arizona. Great Hearts is a charter school, which will be one of our talking points today and a very hot topic of discussion in America. I think you're going to enjoy this intriguing conversation of one of our teachers that is passionate about shaping the great minds of the future, not only in education, but the next generation in what is true, good, and beautiful. We want to celebrate all the educators out there who have worked endless hours to educate our children, especially during this pandemic around the world. Come join the conversation. Yeah. I've been getting really into cooking lately. I've been watching a lot of um, the chef show mm. that John Favreau created. It is awesome. I get a lot of good ideas from him. So you literally take a small thing of white vinegar. Uh-huh. It, it's very simple, simple sauce. And uh-huh. you chop up uh, garlic cloves and chili peppers. And so you just mm-hmm. like little chili peppers, garlic cloves, and you stick it in like you pour about that much of vinegar and then put mm-hmm. the cloves and the peppers in there and you just let it sit in the refrigerator and you can sprinkle that on your food and it is the best. Ooh. Yeah. yeah. So it's just good. kind of like a sauce you can put on chicken if you just did a chicken yeah. breast. Or sounds like like a, that. like a really good, almost like a homemade hot sauce, like a homemade. In a way, but it's like vinegar. So it's kind of got that preserve you know kind of like pickled flavor uh-huh. to it so it's very good yeah so you just want that like this good. much vinegar and then you fill the other yeah. stuff in there so well Jamin I'm really excited that you're here with us today on my very first podcast with truth be known and I wanted to just ask you a couple questions you know where do you work right now what are you doing for a living yeah, I'm really happy to be here. Right now, I'm working at Chandler Preparatory Academy, which is one of eight Great Hearts schools in Arizona. Great Hearts is a charter school organization that has committed itself to kind of a new slash old form of education called classical education. So, kind of a what exactly interesting movement that's taken hold here. Yeah. What, what exactly do you teach in, in this uh, school? I'm an English teacher and a literature teacher, but that really is just scratching the surface of some of the things I'm doing. Uh, currently, I'm teaching a rhetoric course for seniors where I teach them classical rhetoric as it was taught in ancient Greece and Rome, uh, as well as uniting that with some of the great rhetorical tradition as it's been found in, the Amer- in uh, American history. Um, and then I'm teaching a course in ancient history, uh, studying the cultures of Mesopotamia, Egypt, Greece, Rome. And then I teach a course for ninth grade students called Humane Letters, which is a course that combines history, literature, and philosophy uh, into one two-hour class every single day. So it's kind of a weird throw bag of different subjects that I teach. You know, I, I've always been interested. I know you well, and you've talked to me before a little bit about uh, your teaching style, uh, the school. Could you give me a little bit more information to our audience about what is the heartbeat of the school as well as your teaching style and what it looks like? Yeah, absolutely. Um, One of the things that's really special about the school, I think, starting off is uh, because it's a charter school, meaning that it is a private organization that has received a charter from the Arizona state government uh, to receive public funding. 
um, they have a lot more control over the way that they do education. They don't have to follow all the different educational mandates of most public schools. Um, and that freedom has allowed them to create an educational environment that is very, very unique. The best way I can describe it is really in maybe two pictures. The first is um, the school's motto, which is teaching students to love what is good, true, and beautiful. The reason that quote is so significant and different from what most schools do is that the majority of public schools in the United States really concern themselves the most with teaching students to know what's true. But there is not as much of an emphasis upon what's good and what's beautiful, because what's good has something that's a moral aspect, and what's beautiful is an aesthetic aspect. Education today in a lot of the public sphere has come to the conclusion, which I believe is the wrong conclusion, and my school believes is the wrong conclusion, that morality and aesthetics are just up to personal opinion. Mm -hmm. They're not something that can actually be studied. It's just something that you have an opinion about and you can't disagree with anybody else about their opinion. My school doesn't hold that to be true. My school says that you can learn what's true and assent your mind to what's true, but you can also train your heart to understand what's moral, what's good. You can also train your eyes and your passions to love what is truly beautiful in the world, both naturally and in the arts. So that's the first picture. Second picture, uh, which relates to it, is that when you walk into my school, the very first thing that you see is a painting. It's an imitation of Raphael's The School of Athens, which is a very famous painting from the Renaissance. And in the painting, you have Aristotle, the great Greek philosopher, who has his hand like this. It's pointing downward. And you have Plato, his teacher, pointing upward. Above the heads of those two great philosophers, who are arguably the two greatest philosophers in all of human history, are in Latin six words, verum, bonum, pulchrum, truth, goodness, and beauty. And then it says, Athene, Roma, Jerusalem, Athens, Rome, and Jerusalem. So obviously the truth, goodness, beauty is related to the quote for the school and encouraging students to love those transcendental realities of truth, goodness, and beauty. But the other three words, Athene, Roma, and Jerusalem, is a unapologetic stance that the school takes that from the cultures of Greece and Rome and Jerusalem, we find some of the main foundations for our culture today. And that is worth returning to those great civilizations to learn what they can teach us, to see how those foundations were formed, and to see how our tradition as the human species has taken on those traditions and changed them ever so slightly throughout the many centuries since. Those two pictures, I think, encapsulate something that the school is trying to do. That's excellent. I, I really appreciate you explaining that and want to know, you know, what drew you to teach at this school? What, what was it that and how long have you been there to teach and, and what do you love about your teaching style and, and the classical style? Well, I've been there, this is my fourth year teaching there. I ended up getting interested in teaching at the school at the end of my time in my undergrad degree. I went to a Christian liberal arts college near Orlando, Florida, called Southeastern University. And I studied history there, as well as theology and theater. So I was trained in an academic discipline, very much training my mind, history, in theology, obviously still training the mind, but of, of course there is a spiritual aspect to it, a moral aspect to it. In theater, which is a very artistic aspect. And at the end of my education, I was looking for a way to kind of put those different interests all together. Mm -hmm. And I just ended up stumbling upon this new school that was trying to do that, trying to unite the arts and intellectual study and moral development together for students. I think too, one of the things that led me into this school 
is that when I was in college, I encountered surprisingly a lot of really strange trends in education today, strange trends that are at the high ends of our education. These trends were, to put it as simply as possible, what we call postmodernism, which is the belief that there really isn't truth, that the whole world is just filled with opinions, that no one can actually claim to know the truth. No one can claim to know what's good or what's beautiful, that it's all opinion. It's all up to your culture. It's all relative. And I was really disturbed by that philosophy. And I did a lot of research trying to figure out where did that philosophy come from? What are the bases of it? And could a philosophy that combats it hold its own? Great Hearts is committed to standing against that philosophy in many ways. And so that's what drew me to it. One of the things I really love about it is that the school takes so seriously the idea that education is not just about training the mind, but training the entire human person. And so every day when my students come into the classroom, I get the chance to not just help them learn history, but to help them become a better human being who knows what it means to be human. I have them ask those questions and expect them to wrestle with Could, could you give me an example, maybe a scenario that has happened like that with your students without yeah, naming absolutely. your students? <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. A, a week and a half ago, I sat down with my students to read one of the great essays that have been written in all of American history, Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from a Birmingham jail. It was very apt because we read it in the same week that Martin Luther King Day was being celebrated here in the United States. And this letter was written by Martin Luther King Jr. while he was sitting in a jail cell after he had been protesting the injustices of segregation in the American South in the 1960s. And he came across an article in a newspaper while he's in his jail cell where five Baptist pastors in the South had written an open letter to Martin Luther King Jr. saying that what he was doing in Alabama to protest these injustices was wrong, that it was unwise and untimely. And I'm, I'm actually quoting them. That's what they say. They say, you are being unwise and untimely. And King set about in the margins of that newspaper to write this letter in response, trying to prove that what he was doing actually was very wise and very timely. And one of the beautiful things about reading this with my students is that in the letter, he states very clearly that the main justification for what he's doing in protesting segregation in the South is in line with the great traditions handed down to him by Socrates, the great Greek philosopher, Jesus, who Martin Luther King Jr., I mean, he was a Baptist pastor, so he believed Jesus was the son of God, but also a great, great teacher. And St. Paul, uh, those are his three figures that he pulls the most from. And he says, what I'm doing is very similar to what they did. I'm challenging society to hold up itself to justice and see that it's wanting. And one of the only ways that he can do that is with a belief that justice is is true. It's real. It's not something socially constructed. It's not just a part of culture. Justice is independent of us. And if we don't, if we don't adhere ourselves to that justice, we destroy our personhood. We're we're forgetting what it means to be human, truly human. So I got to do that in a public school with students. I, I think it just, it's incredible. You know, I'm with students of all faith backgrounds, getting to read something like that and talk with them about it. And they just had tons of questions. They were they wrestled with it and, and mold over it for two, three days. And I don't think I would have been able to do that in a normal school. Mm. Well, how does that bring you satisfaction uh, as a teacher? You know, teachers are sometimes marginalized and underappreciated. Where do you feel that you're getting your value um, by teaching and the responses of the students or the parents or what makes you continue? to do what you do? It's a really good question. The main thing that keeps me going in the career, because it is very difficult, I I think any teacher will tell you it, 
any school. Teaching is a very difficult job. It's very demanding, requires that you work sometimes 70, 80 hours a week in order to do the job well. But every single morning, I am so excited to go to work because of the love that I have for my students. And because that day, it's possible that what I teach them is at the base level, going to help them be more productive citizens. But every school does that. Every school, you know, helps children become, you know, move into a career, become good citizens. But I get to do that at the base level. But even more than that, and this is the beauty of my school, I get to help them become more prudent, more caring, more temperate, more aware of the precious humanity that surrounds them, not just in their own day, but stretching back into the past. And they can ground themselves in that tradition and find their identity in it. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I find very beautiful. And it's something that has grounded me. And I get to share that with them. So, yeah. That's amazing. I, I will say that, you know, this is a hot topic is charter schools and, and charter schools are under major attack right now. If you had a world audience right now, which you do in this conversation, what would you say to the average person why a charter school is so important and valuable to the United States right now and to the family system and to the children and to their education? I think the number one thing that I would want to say is that one of the great dangers of our contemporary culture in the United States, and the United States has been exporting this to other cultures around the world for about 100 years now, is something called utilitarianism. Uh, Utilitarianism, kind of big word, but it basically just means this, that the only thing that really matters in life is what's useful. And the way that gets translated into things like education is that education becomes solely about making students productive, teaching them to get a job, get a career, make money, bring home bacon, and that's it. That's the end of it. So the ends of education, the goals, the pursuit has purely become about bettering the economic well-being of society. And that's it. And not to knock economic well-being. I think that's very important. I think that I, I want my students to be prepared for a career and to go to college and to make money, I, I think that that's good. It, it's good. But the big question is, is that the only thing that matters? Is that really all students need to be trained for at school is how to get a job? I think that the answer is no. Uh, I think that most people, when they really think about it, will come to the answer that no, that's not the only thing that really matters. But regardless of that, our education system has been built now our public education in the United States has been built only around getting kids to college and getting them in a career. And that's it. Their moral education has been neglected. We've decided to train students to think, and we talk a lot about, public schools talk a lot about critical thinking, but we're afraid to ask students to think about what does it mean to truly be human. A a good quote that kind of can illustrate this is uh, William Butler Yeats, the great English poet, once said, Education is much less about filling up a bucket and much more about lighting a fire. Mm. I think that's a very helpful metaphor. Another way you can put this, the, uh, another great English writer, C.S. Lewis, when he wrote about education, said that if you educate the head without educating the heart, all you do is create a more clever devil. Mm. And I don't want to create clever devils. Mm-hmm. And I think that you know, this is not to knock great teachers in public schools. I think they're really wonderful teachers doing wonderful things, but I am scared that if we devote ourselves to a utilitarian education, all we're doing is creating clever devils. Mm-hmm. Well, also it's so important that we give opportunity. I mean, America is all about opportunity. And yet if we don't have the option of charter schools, then we're limiting the opportunity of families and parents to make that decision for their children. So to give them this option, to give them this ability, uh, would you agree with that? Absolutely. I mean, this, the one thing that has saved children in our education system, which has become so utilitarian is the family. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, I, myself, I grew up in public education. I, I went to public school 
except for elementary school, but all through middle school and high school, I was in public education. And I, I don't necessarily think it completely ruined me, but the only reason it didn't ruin me is because my parents took the time to give me a very, very deep moral and spiritual education on their own. And thank God for those families. Thank God for those families. But the importance of a school like this is, you know, one of the wonderful things about my school is it's free. It is publicly funded, even though we don't follow the public school model. So any family can come to my school, rich or poor, and seek an education for their children that is at a very high academic level. Level. I don't know if I've mentioned that so far, but Great Hearts is um, far and above in terms of just academic rigor, far and above any yeah. public school. In we have, or, it is a college preparatory school. And I mean, some of the yeah. literature that I know that you've taught in Humane Letters is yeah. literature that I did in college, not at the high school level or even junior right. high level. So at some point, I want you to kind of share some of the literature that you have your seventh graders, ninth graders, yeah. and uh, seniors being reading, because I think people yes. would really marvel at that, of what kind of deep education yeah. they're getting and, and reading the grades. But absolutely, you know, you're, you're at a higher academic level, but yet this is a free education. But I think some people might argue the point with you that, well, you know, you've, you have um, school uniforms, correct? You know, there's some structure mm-hmm. involved with that. Why, why is that? Why does that important or an important role yeah. in your school? Yeah, absolutely. A, a very good question. We do. Uh, not only is my school at a high academic level, which I, I could go into more detail maybe in, in, in just a little bit, but we have a very high, we have very high behavioral expectations of our students. Can, can you give me an very example high. of that? Yeah. We, so we require every student to wear a uniform every single day. And if students fall out of line with it, then uh, we'll send them home to, to get their uniform fixed. That's such a small thing. And you may ask, like, well, why would we do that? Is it that you know, cruel to make all the kids wear the same thing? And doesn't that take away their individuality? I, I've, I've heard that before. The main thought of doing something like that is that we don't want students to value each other because of the clothing that they wear. We want, you that, we want them to value each other because of what's in their mind and in their heart, because of their character. And we're trying to teach them that what you have and what you wear and what you look like are not the most important things which in American culture is a very difficult thing to teach to teenagers. They, they seem to have an infinite capacity for caring about what they look like. But they, we want our school to be a place where the more important aspects of what it means to be human are brought to the forefront. And those arbitrary things, how much money you make, what kind of clothing you wear, how cool are you, that stuff falls to the wayside. Now, we have some other things as well. I I mean, obviously, most schools have the typical rule, you know, no drugs on campus, no school bullying and everything like that. I think, though, too, one of the areas that we excel with our students is in classroom comport. So I'll give you an example of this. When I come into my classroom every single day, I I have uh, I teach seventh grade ancient history. So there are 12 year olds that come in and oftentimes their 12 year olds get squirrely. (laughs) even at a classical school, they can't stay in their seats. I will tell them two things typically to get them to start lining up and getting in shape. First off, I will tell them I need to see everyone in scholarly positions in five, four, three, two, one. And they know what scholarly positions means. Scholarly positions means that they have their, their rump down in their seat, They have their hands folded on their desk or a pencil in their hand. They are looking up at the teacher and their mouths are closed. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I expect my students by the time I get down to one in my count. And if they don't follow it, I, I, this may sound mean, but I, I will give them a detention if they don't get that the first time. The reason being that it's just such a solid expectation that I think is required for good learning. That, that I be able to get that attention very quickly. It's for their own good and benefit that I would mm-hmm. ask something like that. Another example is one of the things I'll do usually after I do that is I'll just say to the students, 
I'll say to them, students, what are we here to do? And I've trained them to have a, a response. And they'll all say back to me in unison to learn to love what's beautiful. And so you can imagine a class of 30 seventh graders, 30 12 year olds, just all to learn to love what's beautiful. <laughs> um, and I, I, I have them do that because I, I want them to know every time I have to bring them in line that I'm not doing it to be mean or cruel, but I'm doing it because there's so much at stake in whatever we're learning at that moment. Because what we're learning at those times when I, I call their attention back is something that is helping to shape their destiny in the future. It's helping them to recognize beauty in their surroundings. So we hold that high report for the students, which I think is something very beautiful. You shared a story with me one time and I thought it was very clever. And mm -hmm. after this, I'd like to ask you your opinion about how COVID has affected you. But, but before then, I want you to share a story that you shared with me in regards to the little elephants. I think it was a little miniature elephants. Something like that. Oh, yes. I, yeah. If you can kind of give me a preference on that and share this with our audience, I think it'd be amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I started, uh, I had a, just a random gift given to me by a friend of mine. He had, uh, he worked for a pastor at a big church and the pastor wanted to do a sermon illustration where he gave the whole congregation little rubber elephants at the end of his sermon. I don't know why but he wanted to do this. Well, uh, this guy who worked for the pastor, he ordered all those elephants, got them, and then the pastor decided to go a different direction with the sermon. So he was just left with all these elephants. And I ran into him and he, he had these bags of elephants. And he said, do you want these? I really don't know what to do with them. So I took these bags, just little elephants, about an inch big, little rubber elephants, just the randomest thing. So what I started doing is I took them to my school and I started hiding them around my classroom. And what I would do is whenever a student did something really exceptional, you know, helping somebody else with their homework or uh, really engaging with a good deep question in class or something like that, I would take an elephant off of wherever I had placed it and I would give them the rubber elephant. And so all my students started competing <laughs> to to see who could get the most rubber elephants by the end of the year. It just kind of became a fun game that we did in the classroom. That is, I think that's so funny and, and a clever way to get their attention and to create yeah. a willingness to help each other and do something good. And so you're mm -hmm. staying along with your motto of being good, you know, true, beautiful. I also wanted to have you share this story that you have shared with me before. And I think this happened just last year. I think this is an amazing story. So would you mind sharing that story with my audience? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So this was uh, uh, two years ago, every year that I've taught at my school, except for well, the year we're in now, uh, obviously because of COVID, but every uh, the last three years, I have uh, been a chaperone for the seniors on their senior trip to Washington, D.C., the U.S. capital. We send our seniors to the D.C. every single year because seniors are turning 18, and we think that it's just a really great idea for the seniors to see the place where American democracy started. Uh, to see their seat of government. So we take them and we visit the White House and we go to the Capitol building and we look at all the museums and we go see George Washington's uh, home at Mount Vernon and uh, the battles of Gettysburg uh, from the Civil War, all sorts of wonderful things. And this is great for me as an American history teacher. I love, love, love this trip. It's a lot of fun. But uh, two years ago, we go on it and I prayed before we went on the trip that God would open up doors with the seniors to allow me to minister to them. Because on the trip, one of the cool things about it as a chaperone is I get to really build comport with the students because we're outside of the classroom. We're sitting on subways half the time and I just get to talk with them and really get to know them and know their stories. And so I was just asking God, Lord, help me to connect with these students, to pour into their lives, to encourage them, you know, open up opportunities for ministry. That I can do. And we got on the trip. I was really excited. Our first day of the trip, we got on the subway and we're heading to the White House. We're going to do a tour of the White House. And I go up to talk to a group of seniors 
And right as I start talking with him, I hear a horrible sound at the back of the train car. Just this, <laughs> just a horrible gurgling and, and, and it just blah, 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 blah. And, and then a yell. And someone started yelling, Mr. Metcalf, Mr. Metcalf. So I, I run back. I, uh, I say, what's going on? What is this? What, what, what's wrong? And I get back there and there's kind of an awkward kid, a little bit of a loner, you know, didn't really get along with all, all the other kids there. And he was throwing up everywhere at the back of the train car. I just had thrown up all over it. People were normal DC citizens are, are running away from where he was. So you can only imagine. I, came back and I, I, I helped this kid. I, I, I got him off the train. I take him to Walgreens. I get him some medicine to help him out. But I, in doing so, I had to miss the whole White House tour. And I, the whole day I basically missed being with the other students and I was very frustrated. Um, kind of just upset that yeah, I, even though you know, I'm taking care of this kid, I'm happy to take care of him, but I'm like, man, you know, and so the next day I, I prayed again, Lord today, help me to connect with the seniors. I want a moment where I can really connect with them. And that day we went to Mount Vernon, George Washington's home. And we were in line to head into the museum there at his home and, I hear another sound of someone throwing up behind me. And I hear again, Mr. Metcalf, Mr. Metcalf. I just said, oh my, I, I, I grab his arm. I'm like, okay, come on, let's go. You know, we're, we're going to get you to Med Bay. I'm sure they have something like that here. So we go in the museum and talk to security. I get him in there. They give him some medicine. He's sitting basically on a doctor's table in, in a nurse's office there in the museum. And I went and sat outside of his room. He went to just kind of take a nap. And I started kind of complaining to myself, just, hey, this is so frustrating. I'm having to spend the whole day here in this med bay. I don't get to spend any time with the other students. And then I, all of a sudden it hit me just like a train. I, I almost felt like God, you know, <laughs> in a way of, of harsh love said, are you really this stupid? I'm opening up a door right here. Why aren't you walking through it? So I went back into the, this nurse's office and sat down with this kid and just started talking with him, asking about how he was and about his family, about you know, things he had been doing this senior year, about where he was thinking of going to college. And he started just really opening up to me. Near the end of the conversation, though, he said that he was really looking forward to this trip and he's just so angry at himself. That, that he's ruining the trip for himself and for everyone else. And he just kept saying, I'm an inconvenience. I'm just an inconvenience to everybody. I, I've always been an inconvenience. And I, I started telling him, you need to stop saying that. I said, it's fine. It's okay. This, these kind of things happen. We planned for this. It's going to be okay. You got, you got more days left. You can be on this trip. Anyways, I just tried encouraging him. But then he laid down and he went to sleep because he still was feeling sick. And I, I just felt what I really believe was a move of the Holy Spirit felt like I should write him a little note while he's sleeping. And so I took out a piece of paper out of my bag and I wrote down on it a quote from a, an author that I actually teach, G.K. Chesterton. And he's a, a, a philosopher, but also a Christian. And I wrote down this quote from G.K. Chesterton that said, an inconvenience is only an adventure wrongly considered. And an adventure is only an inconvenience rightly considered. G.K. Chesterton. That's all I wrote on the note. And I just put it next to his bedside and left. Later, he came out. I never, he didn't have the note in his hand. I never, he never mentioned the note. I never heard anything about it. Rest of the trip, he was fine. Rest of the year, I never really hear anything about it. In the hallways, I pass him. I would just say hello to him. But at the end of his senior year, I went to the graduation ceremony. And at the end of the graduation ceremony, he came running towards me in his his gown. And he, he lifted up his gown, said, Mr. Metcalf, I, I have to show you something. And he pulled out his wallet. And, and in his wallet was that note that I had given him. He pulled it out and he said, he said, Mr. Metcalf, you, you have no idea how much this note means to me. You have no idea. He said, I've been struggling with clinical depression since I was 14 years old. And I didn't know if I was going to make it through my senior year. I, I thought I was going to kill myself. I didn't know if I would make it. And he said, and you were so kind to me. You took care of me on the senior trip. And I just appreciate it so much that you really cared for me and loved me there. And so I just gave him a hug. And I was like, man, you know, appreciate you sharing that with me. I, and I really do love you, man. I care about you. I hope you, you know, do well at college. You know, you, you can connect with me. Let me know how you're doing. 
and sent him on his way. And so it, it just really was a confirmation of the Holy Spirit that some of those things that I've really been striving for to, to see students morally and, and aesthetically lifted up, spiritually lifted up, I was really seeing that fruit. Yeah. So an incredible moment. What an incredible teacher you are that you don't just care about them getting their testing done and and just getting through the process, but you actually care about them as a student. And it sounds like your school really cultivates that environment and gives you that opportunity. So that is just incredible. With, with that, and that story just touches my heart, but with that, how has COVID affected you, your teaching, and what, what have you learned from this experience? Are you teaching online right now? Was your school prepared for that? How has this affected your students? How has this affected you? It's been difficult for teachers all over the world, and my school's no different. been incredibly, incredibly difficult. Uh, students' grades have gone down. Teachers' work-life balance has been completely out of whack, and everyone has has done the best they can to keep things afloat. But there are some interesting lessons that I think I've learned from it. One of the key ones is, like many schools, we have a lot of students on online that are just doing Zoom. So I only see them every day through a screen. And I think before COVID, there was there was a there were a few murmurings about, you know, is social media or the way we connect online is that really authentic? Is that really good for us as a way to connect with people? But I, I don't know if there was anything really prevalent with it. One of the things I've seen, though, from this, having so many students online and having to teach through a screen, is it's really brought the limits of that kind of technology to the forefront. It's really mm-hmm. revealed them. And if I, if I could venture to maybe just get a little philosophical and maybe even a little theological. Yeah. I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Yeah. I I think that one of the major problems with the utilitarian view of education is this idea that students only their minds trained. So if you can touch the students' minds, that's all that matters. You just have to train them to think. It's all about thinking. They're thinking beings. That's what it means to be human is to reason and to think, and that's it. So just do that. Well, when you talk with somebody over a screen, you can. Uh, There are difficulties here and there, but I'm able to communicate over a screen. I can teach a lesson over a screen, but my goodness, what I cannot do over a screen is truly connect with all the other parts of who they are. It is so much more difficult to connect with students' hearts. It is so much more difficult to connect with them in a way that is the physical presence of students in the classroom adds such a high level dynamic to the mm-hmm. teaching well, that even nothing, no sort of technology can replace. To humanize them, we are humanists. We need fellowship. We need each other. We were never built yeah. to be isolated or exactly cut right. off. Right. That's right. That's right. And so this, this is, I mean, you know, I mean, it's such a big topic. We would need, you know, a whole, I think I could go on for, for hours about it, but, uh, you know, Western culture in particular, but many other parts of the world as well have become increasingly individualistic. It's all about me. It's about my life, what I think about my space, focus so much on the self. So it's isolating in a sense. Do I really need other people? Well, we're discovering now, of course we do. Another thing very common right now is, well, what really matters is just what you think. You know, you have to reason, you know, learn to think critically. Well, now we're seeing too that that's also not all that you really need to be human. There's other things that students need. Students need to be with friends. Students need to have a physical connection with their teachers and with the school building itself, right? Because they're not just brains on sticks. Mm-hmm. As human beings, we're not. We're not brains on sticks. We are living, breathing, feeling, desiring, spiritually open beings on this mm-hmm. planet. So that's something that has to be recognized. This is why, too, it's so important, like I said in the, near the beginning of the podcast, 
that students ask the question, what does it mean to be human? I think it's the most important question anyone can ask. What does it mean to be human? Where do you come from? Where are you going? What does it mean to live well? Right. It, it, it gives value to them. Absolutely. It, it's the question of value. It's the question. What does your life mean? What, mm-hmm. it, what is its value? That value cannot be found just simply in the idea of a human being as a brain on a stick. Mm-hmm. That's a cold universe that you can't survive in very long. You know, the, the isolating and the social distancing and, and all of that, it, it's necessary. I think, that it, I think that it is necessary in our time, but it has brought forward to us that education is so much more than just the mind. It really is. Mm-hmm. Uh, as Aristotle said <laughs> 2,500 years ago, an education of the mind without an education of the heart is no education at all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think he was right. I mean, how funny it is that he, he recognized that 2,500 years ago and they didn't have Facebook, (laughs) but you know, well, not only, you know, that time as well, but it's the life experience. It's, it's being in communion with people and even learning from people's experiences and examples, things like that is part of an education as well. It's not just what you learn in the book but it's what you yes. do. It's, it's being with each other. It's what to do. It's what not to do. What yes. you should right. do in life, what you should not do in life. Um, it's, it's forming them as a human ra- in a, in a good citizen character. rather than just education. Yeah. So I, I totally understand what you're saying here. I, I do want, uh, we're, we're going to be coming to a conclusion in just a moment, but I would love for you to share a very funny story of what just happened without naming the the kid, but a story that you had with your Zoom call with your education, a very clever kid that tried to kind of fool you. If you can share that with our audience today, I think they would enjoy this. Yeah, so I had a, a student, a seventh grader. Um, I, I was teaching my class and I had a few students in person, most of my students online on on a Zoom call. And I uh, asked him a question in class and he was was a student on Zoom and I could see a picture of his face that he's like sitting in his room and it looks like he's paying attention. But I asked him a question and I got no response. And in fact, it looked like he wasn't even moving, like he wasn't reacting. Blinking, he wasn't blinking or smiling or anything. Yeah, not smiling. And so I, I asked him the question again and uh, call him out and, and nothing. I don't see him move. And, I, and then I realized it's a still frame picture that what he had done is taken a picture of himself sitting attentively at his screen and then made that his background on Zoom and then walked away from his computer to do something else. And so he was not even there, um, but I could see a picture of him. Uh, and so I just took note of it in that moment and then <laughs> ended up sending an email home, letting his parents know that that was something he was doing in the kindest way possible. Just wanted to make them aware and ask them if they could just watch him and make sure he wasn't doing it again. It never happened again, but I thought it was a very clever trick that he tried to get away with. Yeah, it's, yeah. Kids can be creative, can't they, in we the classroom? Can. What, what yeah. is your favorite class to teach right now? I mean, you've done humane letters, ancient history, American history, uh, uh, and rhetoric. What, what, what is the, your favorite class to teach? You know, right now, my favorite class is my ancient history class for seventh graders. Um, my students, they're just about 12 years old, typically 12, 13. And they're hilarious. They are just so funny. Uh, I, every day kind of a goofy stage of life, right? It's kind of an awkward stage of life. Yeah. And, and I've tried to make the class, um, again, this is, you know, going into the training, the whole person, uh, I'm a big believer that I, I, I think it's very important that they do all the typical things in a history class that they memorize dates and names and learn the stories of the ancient past. But I also want them to just catch the 
the the comedy and the the beauty and sometimes even the terror that accompanies those stories. And so I show them a lot of art. And lately we've been studying the Greeks. And so I've been reading them a lot of Greek myths. Um, and I, I just absolutely love it. It's so much fun. And they get really goofy when they listen to it. I mean, they just find the, the myths so enticing and funny and they always have a funny little comment to make. Not, not in a, a, a way that is really disruptive at all, but just contributing to you know, really exploring it. And so what I'll do is I'll put on ancient music that I find on YouTube and then I'll read these myths to them. And it's- So you have the music in the background while you're yeah, reading music it. in the background, it's just kind of fun, but it is educational. And, and they have just been enraptured by some of those classic Greek myths, you know, the stories of the, the Trojan Wars and of Heracles and, and Theseus and the Minotaur and all that stuff. It, they're, just, they're just absolutely captured by those myths, which is wonderful. I, I, it, it's the coolest thing in those moments that I really get to see their eyes light up and they see something that for thousands of years has been recognized to be truly beautiful. And they, for the first time, experience that beauty. Mm. And, and I get to be the one delivering it. Yeah. That's uh, amazing because you're giving them a deep appreciation for yeah. culture and history. And uh, it's, right. that's wonderful. Uh, I wanted to ask you a question in regards to what kind of literature are, is required uh, that you're yeah. having, I mean, what, what would it look like for a seventh grader compared to a ninth grader compared to a, a senior? What's, what's the literature? I mean, I think it's going to boggle the mind of our audience. Uh, yeah. What kind of literature you're introducing to them? Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, let me just start, I'll go with seventh grade and then move on up. Um, uh, in my seventh grade history course, near the beginning of the year, we were studying one of the oldest civilizations in human history called the Mesopotamian civilizations, which were founded in between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers in about 4,000 BC. So we're talking about a culture over 6,000 years old. And uh, the oldest piece of literature, that complete piece of literature that we have in human history comes out of this culture. Mm. And it's an epic poem called the Epic of Gilgamesh. And I created a, a little bit of a cut down version, but it is the poem itself. And I, I reduced the poem, which is, it's a, usually about a hundred pages long. I reduced it to about 25 pages. So they've got about a quarter of it. And I read that with them. So they read, the oldest epic poem in human history mm. together with me. And they're 12. Wow. And they loved it. They absolutely loved it. And they understood it, which mm -hmm. is something that I think some people don't believe is possible, but I've seen it with my own eyes. It's very possible. And uh, so that's incredible. So that's seventh grade, right? In my ninth grade class, um, with my ninth graders, we read in one year, we read 23 books together and they wrote essays mm. on almost every single one, Amazing. which is quite, quite heavy. Some of those novels that we read and books that we read are things that college students often struggle with. So we read the political philosophy of Alexis de Tocqueville, a French political philosopher who visited America in the early 1800s. We read the Federalist Papers, which are very complex documents that try to wrestle through some of the principles of starting a democratic republic written by people like James Madison and Alexander Hamilton. We read Frederick Douglass's narrative of a life of a slave. Uh, Frederick Douglass was born into slavery in the American South in the mid 1800s and or early 1800s, I'm sorry. And um, through dedication and work and prayer actually escaped slavery, became a speaker against slavery and published his autobiography. And they got to read that autobiography and hear about his mm. life. Uh, and then on top of that, we threw a lot of the normal books that 
students their age read, things like The Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald, a, a, another American classic. And my personal favorite, a book called My Antonia by Willa Cather, um, a great American author who lived in the American Midwest in the late 1800s. So things like that. I mean, ninth graders are 14 years old. Mm -hmm. These are things that graduate students read in their late 20s and sometimes wrestle with. But I have to tell you again, my 14-year-olds did incredible with it. Absolutely incredible. That's amazing. What, what does the senior literature look like? Well, for seniors, so I teach a course in rhetoric, which is uh, studying speech giving. So we read a lot of American speeches, but also some classical speeches as well. With them, in order to train them in speech giving, I decided that instead of giving them a, a textbook, a typical modern textbook, which can be dry and not always the most fun to read, I thought, you know, why don't they learn rhetoric from the man who wrote the very first textbook on rhetoric, Aristotle? So I started giving them excerpts from Aristotle. And then I thought, well, you know, they're reading from the first great teacher of rhetoric. Why not the second great teacher of rhetoric? So I gave them excerpts from Cicero, uh, a Roman statesman and philosopher. And then along with that, I, I would have them read side by side the works on rhetoric from Cicero and Aristotle, and then read American speeches from people like John F. Kennedy and uh, Theodore Roosevelt. Abraham Lincoln, Martin Luther King Jr. Yeah, and see how do they compare? Are mm -hmm. are they drawing upon this tradition from Aristotle and Cicero? How are they deploying this to their own ends in their historical context? So that's been a lot of fun. Uh, so now, to do, do they they don't just study speech, but they actually perform it as well? Correct. And how they do you do, do they, that with COVID and it. lockdowns? Uh, they uh, that. It, in, a, in a way that's very difficult, but <laughs> it's working. Um, I've been teaching them how to write speeches, how to prepare speeches, and then how to deliver them publicly. So uh, it's a little easier with some of my students who are in person, but online students, we've done some things as well where I'll have them stand up in their bedroom across the room, so they're far away from their computer, and they have to deliver their speech to me and I put uh, a video of the Zoom call up on a projector so the whole class can see that they're delivering. Um, and so I've been having them deliver it that way. You have to be way. really creative on how you can make that work when they're locked down yes. in a house, correct? That's right, yeah, absolutely. And, and those are the moments too where of course, you know, technology really shines. I, I feel like maybe earlier in the podcast, I kind of ragged on technology maybe a little too much, but it, you know, technology has helped us some, um, but uh, of course not quite the same as mm -hmm. being in person. Yeah. Wow, that's amazing. I, I really love what you've done and how much passion that you have as a teacher and an educator. It's incredible. Um, you can hear it through your voice as you're sharing. And I just so appreciate it. I think too, I understand that Great Hearts also requires uh, Latin as part of their language learning. Mm -hmm. And is that just for junior high and high school or is that just high school level? What, what levels do they do yeah. that? It, it, it's just junior high. Oh, In just high junior school, high. They, they allow, student, allow students to do four years of other modern languages. They offer German, French, Spanish, things that are definitely more useful than a dead language like Latin. Mm -hmm. But they, yeah, they, they do require every middle school student to take Latin um, for two main reasons. Uh, one, it's, it is something that trains them to think about language differently than when they study language in their own native tongue. That's number one. So it, obviously studying any language will do that other than your own. Mm -hmm. But Latin is a really good starting point because it's a very clean, crisp language, and it's got a very rich tradition behind it. The second reason that they do that is that Latin is the basis for so many modern languages and some of the most prevalent modern languages around the world. Um, it is the basis for, for English, for French, for Spanish, 
for uh, Italian, uh, Portuguese, you know, so it, and the list can go on and on. And so they really do get a good grounding in that tradition before they actually move on to the modern uh, languages themselves. Oh, that's incredible. That's, that's really amazing what you're doing, Jamin. And I appreciate you as a teacher and I, I celebrate you. I thank you for being on the front lines and molding and shaping the minds and the hearts and the whole human uh, in your classroom. And I celebrate Great Heart School. I wanna give you an opportunity as we're getting ready to close this podcast. Just if you could say, this is not just for the USA, but this is a worldwide stage with a podcast here. I wanna give you an opportunity to share maybe one concept that if you could, without any limitation, share with your students or, or their parents, or other educators, or just a person that is right beside you, if you could just share something that's really dear to your heart that you want to just say to the world, I, I just want to hear what you have to say for that. I think that the main thing I would want to share is that when you take a big, when you, when you take a survey look of human history, and you start to read all the great works from all the great people throughout history in the East and in the West, Confucius and Socrates, you know, th those great figures, and you study their lives and their works and what they had to say about what it means to be human and, and our place in the cosmos, they disagree in many, many, many different areas. But one thing that is so constant among them all is that many of the things that, that in the day-to-day -day that we think are so important, such as how much money we make, what we look like, what other people think of us, that those things that consume so much of our mental energy and so much of our time and so much of our worry and so many of our tears, that they're really quite small compared to the larger picture of life. And that when you really take a second to look at creation and the universe and even search within your own soul, you discover that there's something transcendent and beyond, something that's much bigger than all of us. And even though those authors disagree about what that something is, of course, me as a Christian, I think that it's the personal God who created the world, and came to earth in the person of Jesus Christ. And I think that I would just want to share with everyone, do not ignore that transcendental whisper in your heart. Uh, don't focus too much on the shadows of this world. Don't chase shadows, but really try to get the meat out of life. That is excellent. That, that gives us a lot to chew on and to think about and to digest. So thank you for what you've had to share today and enlightening our audience. And uh, I just deeply appreciate it. And again, I celebrate you as an educator. I believe that you are doing an excellent job and uh, we wanna just promote you in what you're doing, promote the Great Heart Schools and, and cheer you guys on. Thank you for educating our students um, and doing such a passionate job of it, not just doing it to do it, not just doing it for a paycheck, but doing it because it's your heart and your passion. And I believe that you're going to have incredible uh, fruit from this and you're going to see lives changed and students with a deeper appreciation for humanity. So I thank you for that. Um, as we're concluding this, I like to conclude our podcast with a truth be known statement. And that statement is this uh, truth be known, Jamin Edward is actually Jamin Edward Metcalf, uh, my son, who I'm very, very proud of. So thank you. Thank you for sharing. And I just want to say to our audience today that we're going to be taking on conversations that are hot topics, but also issues that are happening around the world and so important for all of us, not just in, in America, but throughout uh, many different countries and situations. And so today is a very special day. So thank you for joining us with Truth Be Known. Thank you, Jamin, for educating us today on the educational system and the importance of classical teaching and training. We are so appreciative to you 
And I hope that you have an awesome day. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me on, Mom. Love you. Yeah, love you too. Thank you, Jamin, for joining us today and being our first guest on Truth Be Known podcast. And I also want to express my gratitude for all the educators around the world, shaping the minds of the future with creativity and passion, especially during COVID-19, which has affected all of us. I would encourage my listeners, if you live in Arizona or Texas, to check out Great Hearts Academy Schools. And if this classical education they provide would work for you and your family. We hope you enjoyed the show and we ask you to share this podcast with your friends, coworkers, and neighbors at Truth Be Known on your favorite streaming service. And you can always check out our future guests and topics at truthbeknown.org. That's T-R-U-T-H-B-K-N-O-W-N.org. This is Bridget Metcalf. We will see you next week and let the truth be known.